This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Liverpool.com podcast. I'm still your host, Mo Stewart, and I'm joined once again by Ben Belchak and James Martin. And, well, considering that Jurgen Klopp has reiterated to anyone who listen that Liverpool's transfer business is done for the summer, feels like a good time to take a look around and see the movement of our rivals. Now, last season, at the, this stage, there was some people who said there was as many as four teams in the title race. And then that came three around autumn time, then one, and then eventually two. Uh, But at this stage of the season, technically anything is possible. And there's a few more teams who will believe their transfer business over the summer has done enough to close that gap. So a general question to start with for you, Ben. How worried should we be about all this? It's very easy to overreact to some of the things that happen at this time of the year, isn't it? Personally, I'm not too overly concerned about any of the transfer dealings. I think out of all of um, probably Liverpool's rivals, I think Tottenham have had a particularly strong window and uh, with Conte as well, I expect them to challenge. In terms of Manchester City, I'm, I mean, Haaland is a, is a huge arrival and I think Calvin Phillips is a decent signing as well. But if you look at their outgoings, uh, I think their squad has been weakened somewhat. Um, and uh, yeah, and then, Chelsea again, Koulibaly, strong signing, Sterling as well. Uh, but they're still kind of struggling to to find a, an out-and-out goal scorer. And uh, I think, therefore, that nothing has really changed in terms of their uh, sort of uh, playing style or, or, or their threat. Uh, because what they were good at is defending and their most significant transfer is a defender in Koulibaly. And... Sterling is someone who I think needs other players around him to get the best out of him. Um, and at Manchester United, I mean, the less said, the better. I, I'm, well, not, I mean, I'm not concerned about them at all. At, at, this, at, this point, at this point, we should probably clarify exactly who we are and aren't going to yeah. be talking about, shouldn't we? So, James, yeah. uh, last season, Arsenal and Manchester United finished outside of the top four. Both have made major moves over the summer. Arsenal, in terms of their personnel, United in terms of their manager and some personnel. Now, Arsenal, it's fair to say, are probably further down the road in terms of their evolution as a side. Arteta has been there, obviously, a lot longer than Ten Hag. But we've seen new managers often come in, make players look remarkably different in a short space of time. And a lot of that United squad did finish second in the league just two seasons ago. But all of that being said, are we able to write these two off as being serious title challenges can we even write them off in terms of being top four challengers? Um, I wouldn't write them off as top four challengers. It's it's a tough ask for them to break into it, especially as Ben alluded to with, with some of the Spurs moves that we'll be discussing a bit later on. It's, it's a competitive race for that, that top four. And I think Arsenal and Manchester United will be the two clubs keenest for the eventual Champions League reforms that will probably see England get <laughs> an extra place most years. So... Um, I think they'll just be waiting for that. But they, I think Arsenal in particular have, have put together a, a decent bit of business that will maybe see them knock on the door quite hard for that for that fourth spot. Um, and yeah, like you say, United did finish second not so long ago. It feels like a very long time ago in terms of how far off they are now. But, um, but yeah, they'll both have ambitions of top four. But I think even if you asked 
you know, the managers, the fans, they're not going to be saying that they're in a title race, however much you want to be optimistic at the start of mm. the season. I mean, Chelsea are a side in pretty good shape, all things considered, and they were still miles off the pace of Liverpool and Man City. You have to just have everything right, everything clicking to to compete in the Premier League title race these days. And yeah, like you say, the projects will both need to be a bit further down the line before that's even a mm. conversation. No, I think that's all fair. And those kind of incremental gains may not be enough for some fans, but particularly for someone like um, Ten Hag, who's just coming in, just trying to find his feet. I imagine that he won't be setting his sights as high as last season when Ronaldo came in and everyone said that they were going to win the title. There will be some hot takes. There will be hot takes. Maybe some on this show as well. We'll have to wait and see. Which brings me quite nicely onto talking about Tottenham. Because as uh, Ben alluded to earlier, it appears so far they have won the transfer window trophy, or at least leading the table. They've brought in six players, uh, Richarlison, Eve Basuma, Jed Spence, even Perisic, Clement Longley, and Fraser Forster, which means they've really kind of brought in someone for every department on the pitch, James. And in terms of the outgoing, Stephen Bergwijn, Cameron Carter-Vitters, and uh, Jack Clark, weren't people who were really fighting for first-team places either. So Conte's very much been backed in the transfer market by Daniel Levy in a way that uh, Pochettino's probably looking on as if to say, where was my lot of this? Yeah, maybe he was just too nice. Conte's <laughs> coming and constantly threatened to leave if he doesn't get what he wants. And yeah, Daniel Levy's woken up and it, it's a trademark Conte window, isn't it? It was always going to be as soon as Perisic came through the door early on. It's like, okay, I see what's happening here. And yeah, sure enough, all of the players seem to fit the profile of the, of the sort of team he likes to build wherever he goes. The sort of team that, of course, won Serie A not too long ago with Inter Milan. So, you know, he's, when he came in, he's, he was very clear that he didn't want to be challenging for the top four. He wanted to be challenging for the title. And I think with these acquisitions, that will also be where, where Daniel Levy's head is at. He'll be saying, look, I've backed you to the hilt. You're constantly saying how oh, you're a manager who wants to challenge for the title, go out and do it. So I think the transfers have certainly succeeded in raising expectations. Whether it succeeds in raising them up the table remains to be seen. It's it's I mean, it's exactly the same thing I was saying with Arsenal and United, even though Tottenham are further along, that that, that gap is still so large to bridge. It, it it's it's more plausible that maybe they get involved because I mean, again, as Ben mentioned at the start, you know, there's maybe a little bit of upheaval at Manchester City, even Liverpool, you could say, with Darwin Nunez coming in, maybe changing the style a bit. And, you know, it's maybe that kind of window where another team could sneak in and seize on it, you know, like a less extreme mm-hmm. version of Leicester back in the day. Um, and, I, yeah, I, I rate Conte as a manager. I rate the team he started to put together. But do I think it's enough to, to really fire them into the conversation? Mm-hmm. Possibly not. The other thing you got to think about, Ben, is as James mentioned there, upheaval. I mean, this is what, six players of which I imagine at least five are going to be hoping or expecting to be playing regular first team football. One of them in Richarlison, who, let's face it, probably won't and may not be happy about that. Um, And there is going to be a lot more to deal with this season. We've kind of spoken in previous shows about the schedule, uh, the schedule, talking about five subs. So, Everyone needs to have a bigger squad in general. Spurs are going into the Champions League as well, so they're going to need to upgrade and have a greater depth. But that does bring its own problems. And 
I mean, one of the things uh, we've seen with Conte, he is very predictable in a lot of ways. He wants his wing-backs, he got his, his wing-backs, but he's also quite, I think, combustible, maybe is the word. And if you've got players who maybe aren't getting the minutes they want, could that maybe begin the seed of a problem? I mean, to be fair, I think that's only really happened at Chelsea, where that seems to be the fate of every manager in that dressing room, in all fairness to him. Uh, I think I think he's a world class manager in what he does. He's won the league already, and in in Tottenham he has a pretty strong squad. Now I do think their sort of transfer window is a bit overrated, in my opinion. It's not as I mean they brought in a lot of players, but if you look at the players that they have brought in, uh, I think only a couple of them there really make their starting element stronger. I think uh, in that sense, probably Jed Spence is the the first one who goes straight into the starting eleven for me at right wing back, and then uh, Basuma in midfield. But other than that, I think Longley is very similar to the centre backs that Tottenham already have. Uh, Richarlison, I mean, I, he's he's not going to be uh, it's challenging for Son or Harry Kane's place. He's, he's significantly below that. I mean, he's a good backup option. Uh, which again, sixty million for, at the end of the day, a backup forward is a lot of money to pay, and um, yeah, with Ivan Perisic as well, I can't, I kind of expect him to, to sort of start half and half really, um, and therefore I don't think it's necessarily as impressive as it looks on paper. We'll have to wait and see on that one. I think people are forgetting that Perisic is getting on in years as well. So the idea of him being able to come into the Premier League and be a wing-back, which is a very much more difficult job than being a wing-back in Serie A, let's let's face it. Uh, We'll have to wait and see. Now, let's move one step up the table to Chelsea. Now, it's been a strange time for Chelsea in terms of transfers, James, because obviously for a long time, they couldn't do any. They they won't know when they were going to be able to do any. And they've got a whole new regime in there. And Roman Abramovich, uh, with what he was for Chelsea for so long, people could predict the way he was going to do deals. Now there's new people in situ. So it's very much like clubs are kind of testing the water in terms of Chelsea, what they can and can't do. And they're finding out that they're lost out with Rafinha to Barcelona. They may have lost out to Jokunde to Barcelona as well. But they have brought in Sterling and who someone who I think is the best possible replacement for Antonio Rugaliga that they could have found in uh, Koulibaly. Not necessarily playing on the same side of the defence, but in terms of quality, leadership and all the other things that you got from Rudiger. So they have done some good moves. How would you assess where they're at at the moment? I think they're in a spot of bother, to be honest with you. I mean, I don't mind the moves they've made. I'll come on to them in a second. But I think in terms of maybe what Spurs are targeting, it will be that that third spot, the kind of best of the rest. I think maybe their business is is good enough to potentially topple Chelsea, particularly with, as you say, that kind of mixture of on and off pitch upheaval that they're going through. Um, I, I we'll start with Koulibaly as you as you flagged him up there. I yeah, I, I do think he's a is a good defender, and like you say, some of those intangibles that Rudiger brought have maybe replaced quite nicely by Koulibaly. Um, you know, it's that that famous clip, isn't there, of him sort of shoving one of his teammates into position, which uh, it's always fun to watch. And it's, yes, maybe there's 
the sort of thing you could imagine Rudiger doing as well. But ultimately, it's still one defender. And, you know, they've lost more than one defender. Christensen's gone as well, also to Barcelona, um, so, who have seemingly just ruined Chelsea's summer completely. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, it's not enough. They'll need to sign more defenders. And like you say, it looks like they might be missing out on Koundé as well. So they're going to have to go quite a long way down their list of options, which is never ideal. I mean, mm. obviously, sometimes second choices can be amazing. Liverpool know that as well as as well as anyone with, you know, Salah and Mane would be the, you know, the leading lights in that conversation. But you, that's, you know, that's a recruitment operation working at its absolute optimum after years of of practice this is a brand new team in the back room mm-hmm. as you flagged up trying to sort of feel their way around and and that leads me on to Sterling really because that's what that move kind of feels like I think it might pan out quite well I think he'll he'll do pretty decently he was still posting reasonable numbers at Man City towards mm-hmm. the end and you know as he'll, he'll be playing a bigger part in this Chelsea team he fits fairly neatly into into Tuchel's system which is the one kind of constant amid all the upheaval so, yeah, I could see him posting reasonable numbers, but it does have the feel of just a move that Todd Booley wanted to make to kind of announce mm. himself. Look, I've signed someone from Man City. He's a big name, isn't he? Uh, and I don't really know if it was necessarily what they needed. He is an upgrade on their plethora of existing wingers, but you know there are, there are a lot of young, talented players in similar roles who could maybe have just been given a a bigger opportunity this season rather than going mm-hmm. out and spending quite big on this player who let's not forget would have been available to talk to over a free transfer in, in January. So um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't necessarily rate that piece of business particularly highly. I mean, you've got Pulisic, you've got Hudson-Odoi. I mean, Ziyech could move on and he's not, you know, he's not young, but you know, there are options in those positions. You've got Timo Werner who was playing wide a lot last season. Mm-hmm. We all know his potential, even though he's really not, capitalised on it at Chelsea thus far and then you've got Havertz through the middle who you'd think is pretty much nailed on so you know that's a lot of wingers competing for not many places well this is the interesting thing about it for me because I agree with you you can see it very much being the kind of vanity signing or statement signing as you say coming in from the new owners although you can look at it from the other side and say City have kind of like they don't care they don't really see Chelsea as on their level, so they're happy to sell someone like Sterling to him. I don't know. But anyway, Ben, regarding Sterling, one of the interesting things that come out of all of the talk from him and the manager is that Tuchel seems to have a very defined plan for him. And one of the Sterling things that Sterling mentioned when he was moving on is that he wanted to be central to whatever new team he was playing at. And whether that is literally central uh, and he's competing with uh, Kai Havertz, as James says, or um, Tuchel has something new in mind, maybe a new formation. It's interesting to say that that desire to bring him in has come from not just the owners, but the manager as well. Yeah, it is interesting. He doesn't necessarily strike me as a Tuchel player, uh, but then I guess that that there hasn't really been a defined Tuchel player, really, in attack, uh, wherever he's gone. Um, He's got the speed, I think, to sort of suit his system and style, and I think he will do well at Chelsea. Uh, I just don't know if he is going to be the player to take them to the next level. I think he's going to be a good signing, but I don't see him uh, taking them on to challenge for the title. He's not uh, sort of Premier League, in my opinion anyway, a player who does have that credential to sort of carry the team on his back and uh, lead them to a Premier League title charge. 
but like there's no doubt about it he wanted to have a central role and he wanted to try out that role to to carry a team on his back and it's going to be interesting to see if if Mm. he succeeds or not it is going to be very interesting and i mean i believe that in terms of we were talking about it being a vanity signing it's not quite in the ronaldo to manchester united league but it is probably something that we're going to have to pay attention to because we will have to see exactly how this all works out with Chelsea. It's a very interesting scenario. Now, let's look at Sterling's former employers then, uh, Manchester City, the team who did indeed, unfortunately, win the Premier League. And since they've won the Premier League, they have brought in Erling Haaland. I'm not sure if any of you are aware of that. Erling Haaland from Dortmund might have seen a few things. Anyway, they've also brought in Calvin Phillips, uh, Stefan Ortega and Julian Alvarez. And leaving the club, Fernandinho, the aforementioned Sterling, Gabriel Jesus, Zinchenko, and Zach Steffen. Now, Ben, I'll come back to you on this one first. We will talk about Haaland in due course, but I want to talk about the outs first. Fernandinho, Sterling, Jesus, Zinchenko, and maybe even um, Bernardo Silva and Nathan Ake to come. Just from those ones that I mentioned there, the ones that definitely have left, 148 appearances in the last season was made by those four or five players. That's a lot to lose out of one team in one year, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's almost comparable to what Liverpool have lost uh, in Mane and Origi and Minamino, who made 49 goal contributions between themselves just last season alone. Um, and I think it, it, while they have brought in a couple of players, I think they may still yet bring in more. Uh, it's going to take a bit of time for all of them to gel. I think the only exception there is Haaland, who we are going to talk about later. I don't think he will need time. But uh, in terms of Gabriel Jesus, he's someone who was a game-changer at times for City. And uh, I I think he's a very good player. Uh, Zinchenko as well, he was useful because he could be used in uh, a number of different positions. And particularly at left back, he was quite good. Um, and Fernandinho as well. He's he brought in loads of experience into that city side. And and who are like the the other players who could potentially be moving on as well? Uh, Bernardo Silva, someone who is was instrumental. I think uh, he, he was part of uh, City's best performances last season. And uh, Nathan Ake as well. He's just a, a decent centre back option and. If City don't necessarily add the same amount of reinforcements, I think there is a case to be had, even if they have brought in Haaland, that they, they've kind of been weakened. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Speaking of Haaland, James, uh, Ben says that he doesn't think he's going to take much time to settle in. And I tend to agree to a certain extent. I think... He will score goals because he is a very good finisher and Manchester City are very good at setting up attacks for the said finisher. But I do think in terms of knitting into the squad and knitting into the game plan uh, properly, uh, when it comes to the sharp end of the season for the business end, it's probably going to take a little bit more time because let's face it, Manchester City haven't been playing with one of him for quite some time, really, since, since Aguero's last peak, probably about two seasons ago. Yeah, I go back and forth on it. I, I can see there being an adaptation period because, like you say, 
Guardiola was very quick to mention at every possible opportunity last season that they were playing without a striker. Uh, and now they have very much an archetypal number nine. It, it is an adaptation. But then, um, yeah, the goal he scored on his debut just yesterday was potentially not the most encouraging thing from a Liverpool perspective. It was <laughs> it was very Man City. They got it out to the byline, squared it across, and his debut goal was a nice little tap-in, which you know he, he loves to get on the end of. He loves being in, in those positions, and those instincts are going to be there even in the, in the Man City system. Um, so I do think there will be a period of adaptation both from player to team and team to player, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be severe in the sense that, you know, he goes... 10 games without a goal or something like that. I think he'll he'll be scoring goals from the off and, and will be and will be a danger. But I, I think the biggest worry is is the injury record, to be honest with you. Um you know, he's the fact that he's only just made his preseason debut is quite notable. Uh, of course everyone was having a go at Darwin Nunes for a couple of misses in preseason. I'd be much more worried if Darwin Nunes was only just making his preseason debut because he'd been injured the whole time, especially if he had a track record of these kind of niggling. Wasn't that City's first game though? Oh, City, no, th- no, it wasn't. This was the Bayern Munich one, and they played. They played. It might be the first one on the tour, but he'd been. Guardiola uh, said he'd left him out previously as a precaution. Maybe it was mm. from open training or something, but he'd certainly been absent from something or other. Because um, they, they said they were they were they were being careful with him, managing him carefully, and that sort of that's. I think that's going to turn into a theme of the season. That that kind of sort of wrapping cotton wool around him, which you know, yeah. if if it means he's is fit for three quarters of the games and bangs in a load of goals in them, then fair enough, it's worked well. But it's it's a big risk, particularly when you look at, at the wages they're paying him. Um, and yeah, like I say, I, I'd be more concerned about that than about some some bad misses and meaningless friendlies. So mm. I think that's more the thing to watch out for there. Well, uh, what we should probably talk about is Julian Alvarez as well, because he's kind of a little bit gone under the radar amongst all of this, Ben. Um, because obviously he's another striker who's come in, very highly rated, coming from River Plate, but this is his first taste of European football. They are losing, as we mentioned, both Sterling and Jesus from the front line, so they're going to need him, especially if they are going to be managing Haaland, as James mentioned. They're going to need him to probably hit the ground running as well, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, personally, I think Haaland's injury problems are a bit overstated. It was only last season when he was struggling with injuries, it could just be an anomaly in his career. And I, I think it, it's not necessarily that much of a concern for me. He has the physique and, and the body to sort of recover well. And he has done every single time. Um, I, I, I think they are... It was the friendly he missed, by the way. Just looked it up. Um, <laughs> yeah, he he is. I think he is someone who, who still um, has the fitness and, and he hasn't really struggled with injuries before. Um, obviously, having... I kind of spoke to people around him who developed him and who were part of him when he was coming through. And uh, the, the the general consensus is that his body was just going through an extreme growth spurt uh, when he was a teenager and he had to spend a lot of time in the gym. And I think he is still very young. He's only 21. Uh, mm-hmm. His body is still sort of adjusting. Uh, he's still growing a little bit. He's still sort of, he hasn't, fully developed an adult body yet which is kind of crazy to say when you look at him but that's the truth he's still developing and I think those injury problems will not be as prevalent in the future and with Alvarez um he's he's talented and um I think he's he's going to come good in the end but obviously 
there hasn't really been a, a big precedence for players coming straight from the South American League into mm. the Premier League. And when has that that has been the case, uh, they did they did need to settle. Like for example, Moses Caicedo for Brighton, he's needed a bit of time to gel. Now now he it, towards the end of the season he was starting to come through and he was starting to show his quality. And I think with Alvarez it, it's going to be a bit similar, a bit mm. similar. But at the same time, I mean. As a forward, if uh, if you could choose a team to play for, then it would be Manchester City because he will get chances. So who knows if he's getting the sort of chances that Haaland was scoring in pre-season for Manchester City against Bayern Munich, then um, he, he could he could be a formidable forward as well. No, he he very well could be. And speaking of that bedding in period, it seems very similar to the guy who's just replaced in Gabriel Jesus, who I believe took a good six to eighteen months before he really really saw what he could do. So maybe City will have to wait that long with Alvarez. Maybe not. Now, we, you mentioned James before about the fact that City are most likely to go back into the window, into the market to buy new players. They do kind of still at least need a left back, but. I was looking through the numbers, particularly the outgoings, and I was surprised to see that they've made more than £43 million from five players that they've sold. And none of these players are players who were playing for the first team. Um, I don't think any of them have even made any Premier League appearances when you look at the names. So I'm actually really quite surprised how they've been able to do that under the radar. We've got Gavin Bazunu, Pedro Porro, Ko Itakura, uh, Romeo Lavia, and Darko Gyabi. And as I say, £43 million. And none of those players cost you more than uh, £4 million on Premier League, fancy Premier League. So this is a kind of an underrated part of what City are doing. They're kind of doing it under the radar. But you look at it from the other perspective and you wonder about the younger players who are coming through. We've obviously got a fantastic connection between our youth team and the first team itself. Whereas City have kind of got Phil Floden there flying the flag can you see any more being able to come through or do you think that this is going to be something they're going to suffer from? They're going to start to lose some of these young players who could have potentially come into the side. Yeah, it's quite ironic, isn't it? I think they're probably going to become the champions of FFP before too long because <laughs> they've made it They've made it to the top where they can now run this sustainable model, how they got there. You know, there's question marks over it. There's a Premier League investigation into it. But, you know, that's all we'll say for the time being. But essentially now they have this very like shiny new academy pumping out great players. They've got the best coaches to work with them. They have the best youth recruitment to find them in the first place. Then it's, yeah, it's a, it's a repeatable way of them making a lot of money. As you say there, they've, they've monetized their their latest crop of youth players very well indeed. Um, so I don't think they'll necessarily be be worried about it. I don't think they'll even feel they need the pathway there to the first team because they'll say, look, we banked 40 odd million, we'll go out and spend it on someone who we think is a bit more proven. And it's a valid way of doing things. Chelsea have been doing it for goodness knows how long and it's worked quite well for them. Um, but yeah, in terms of, you know, in terms of what fans want to see and then somewhat less pressingly, but also in terms of homegrown quotas you know there's occasionally you need players who are homegrown from the club as well you know it's a smaller quota but certain competitions will mm. require them so it's always good if you can have that kind of semi-reliable link between your your academy and your first team and it does save you money so yeah I mean they were they won't necessarily be thrilled to be losing all those players and 
and they will hope that they will want another Foden because you know it, it's good for PR as much as anything yeah. else, isn't it? Um, and yeah, I think they they were refusing some fairly sizable offers for, for Liam Delap this summer. So it's it's not as though it's it's mm. a complete fire sale of, of everyone promising in the academy. But but yeah, I think from a Liverpool perspective, you'd say you, you'd rather be holding on to some of those players. I mean, like Bazunu, for example, very much battling Kelleher for the number mm. one shirt for. For Ireland, and so yeah, the difference in treatment that they've had at the two clubs is quite telling. Bazunu sort of shipped out on loan to League One last season, I think, and then then sold now. Whereas Klopp doing his utmost to make Kelleher feel valued and make sure that we mm-hmm. can keep him at the club as an elite number two option to have. Like it's it's different models, and, and I prefer Liverpool's. Yeah, I think I prefer Liverpool's as well. And it's interesting you mentioned the homegrown quota. I think that's probably why Man City value Nathan Ake somewhere around 45, 50 million and Chelsea clearly do not. So plenty to think about. Uh, as we say, the window is still open, so plenty more moves to make. But I think we can all agree that from a Liverpool perspective, we are still very much in a very good position to attack the Premier League next season. Now, before we go, I just want to do a little bit of housekeeping. Obviously, the five-a-side show we did last week, the votes came in. Unfortunately, James, yours seems to be the most popular team. I'm still not sure about that. But I just wanted to give you your flowers for that up front because next week we are doing the Premier League predictions show. And for those of you who've been with us for over a year, you'll remember that James made some quite wild predictions last (laughs) year, which he's going to have to answer for next week. So... Do tune in for that. Ben, James, it's been a wonderful show once again. Thank you for joining me. To all of you, see you next week. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.